Good to see y'all. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 1? Now, if you will indulge me one more week, I would like to continue laying a little foundation for our study, and I think next week we will then start to really get into uh, chapter 1. But, you know, there is so much in that very first verse. And last time we, we camped on it and we talked about it, I'd like to revisit that and, and just talk a little bit more about uh, not just this book, but of course uh, the very first verse, which not only lays the foundation for the Bible, but for our whole lives, all right? And uh, as we said last time, the word Genesis comes from the Greek word, a Greek word that means origin or beginning. Genesis is the book of beginnings, and so it's only appropriate that it starts off in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. Now, when it says in the beginning, understand that Moses, who wrote this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, isn't saying in the beginning before anything existed. Okay, understand that. He is only making reference to the beginning of everything in the physical universe. There are beings and things that existed before Genesis 1-1 that predates the physical creation. Of course, at the top of the list would be God himself. God was there before the beginning of time. Often unbelievers will ask us as Christians the question, where did God come from? Who made God? The answer, of course, is no one made God. God is eternal. They say that's impossible. No, it isn't. We know that the Bible teaches that God is eternal. He had no beginning. He will have no end. Now, in Psalm 93, verse 2, we read, the psalmist said, Your throne is established from old. You are from everlasting. Psalm 90, verses 1 and 2. The psalmist said, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever, uh, you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now, we know, of course, the God of the Bible is a trinity. And we'll talk more about this next time. But the God of the Bible is a trinity of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who together make up one God, who is, of course, eternal. Now, the Jehovah's Witnesses like to say, and they teach that Jesus Christ, the second person of the trinity, is not really the second person of the trinity. He was a created being. And, of course, that's a heresy. Jesus Christ is not a created being, he is the creator of all things. And John tells us in his, his gospel, chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word, of course, is a title for Jesus Christ. You can reference Revelation chapter 19, I believe around verse 11, where uh, we see that clearly, that, Jesus, that the Word is a title for Jesus Christ. But when John talks about in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God, uh, John has in mind here, no doubt, the beginning of creation. The beginning of creation. And that verse in John 1, verse 1, takes us back to Genesis 1, 1, where Moses wrote in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But here's the difference. Whereas Genesis begins with the creation and moves forward in time, John begins with the creation and goes backward before time and creation began. When John says, in the beginning was the word, was the word, he uses the imperfect of the Greek word, emi, for was. And that Greek word expresses the idea, listen, 
of continuous, timeless existence. So John takes us back to Genesis 1.1, but then he goes back before there was time to tell us before time began, the word already existed. He's God. In contrast to another word for was, he uses in verse 3, which is the Greek word agenita, and it means to come into existence or to begin to be. So verse 3 of John's Gospel, chapter 1, says, All things were made through him. And without him, without Jesus Christ, nothing was made that was made. All things through Jesus came into being, although he himself had no beginning. Because he is God, he is eternal. That's what God wants us to know. And I want to just bring that out because we're talking about the eternality of God. And of course, the cults will attack the divinity the eternality of Jesus Christ, some of them. And it's important that we understand as believers that Jesus Christ is God, the second person of the Trinity, and as such, he had no beginning, he will have no end. When he entered the womb of Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit, he was born onto the earth eventually. He took on a human body. That is not when he first came into being. He has always existed, of course, because he is God. So before there was anything in the universe there was god and of course jesus is god he is eternal and i'll give you john 17 verse 5 where jesus said now O father glorify me together with yourself with the glory which i had with you listen before the world was and then in john 17 verse 24 jesus said father i desire that they also talking about his disciples whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. Now, we believe that Jesus Christ is eternal, but just in case somebody tunes in on the radio one day when this is playing or uh, goes on the website, we want to make sure everybody understands what the Bible is saying about God, the Trinity, and of course about Jesus Christ in particular. So God existed before the physical creation. What else was around? What else existed before Genesis 1-1? Well, God's plan of redemption predates the physical creation. In Revelation 13, verse 8, we read that Jesus was a lamb, listen, slain from the foundation of the world. In other words, before God ever created the world, the plan of redemption was already in his mind. Because, of course, God knew we were going to blow it. Didn't catch him by surprise. I mean, people think, you know, oh, man, you know, Adam blew it. But God had to scramble Get a plan B going. No, he understood exactly what was going to happen. All right, he already had the plan of redemption in place. In fact, before he ever spoke the world into existence, in the mind of God, he already saw on Calvary's, uh, on Calvary's hill the cross of Jesus Christ, Jesus hanging on that cross, dying for our sins. We read in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, the apostle Paul says, Just as he chose us in him, now talking about the plan of redemption and how it predates the physical creation, just as he chose us in him, listen, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. We know that God's promise of eternal life predates the creation. Titus 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul said, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. 
I don't have time to camp on that, but that's quite a verse. All right? God promised eternal life before time began. Well, if it was before time began, we were not there yet, right? We weren't created. We were created in time. So who did God promise to give eternal life? Who, who did he promise? He promised himself. The Trinity made a promise that Jesus Christ was going to die for our sins. They promised that anyone who would believe in Jesus would have eternal life. And because we weren't around, we weren't created yet, it was not a, listen, bilateral, two-party covenant. It was a unilateral, one-party covenant. God made it with himself. And no matter how badly you and I blow it, we don't enter into that equation. You know, some Christians teach and believe that you get saved through your faith, but if you mess up and you don't live a holy life, whatever that means in their mind, you can forfeit your salvation. But I love it because God promised himself he would give us eternal life purely by our faith, apart from anything we did or didn't do. So that's a whole study in and of itself. But I, I just had to mention it, okay? And finally, it seems that the angelic beings were around before the physical creation of Genesis 1.1. Um, I, I can't be dogmatic about this. We know from the book of Job, chapter 38, verses 4 to 7, that they were around when God laid the foundation of the earth. When God created the world, they were there because they shouted for joy. So sometime before that, and I'm thinking even before Genesis 1-1, God created the angels. And then as they were there before him, as he then began to bring the physical universe into existence, they were shouting for joy when he laid the foundations of the earth. And I'll give you one more. And it says in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, plural, heavens. Remember what Paul said. He was caught up to the, what heaven again? Third heaven. What is that? Well, that's the realm where God dwells. You have the first heaven, which is the atmosphere that surrounds the earth. You have the second heavens, which is the celestial heavens where the planets are. Then you have the third heaven where God dwells. Now, in Genesis 1-1, when it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, I believe that Moses had in mind the atmosphere around the earth, the, the heavens in the sense of the universe where the planets are. But God's realm, the heaven that we think of when we think of going to heaven someday, that was already there because God already existed. Okay? So, again, we read, In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, I've said this before. Let me say it again. I think it's interesting that the Bible doesn't start out trying to prove the existence of God, but instead simply starts out with a statement that assumes his existence. Apparently, God didn't think it was necessary to prove his existence since the creation itself testifies to the existence of God. Why don't you turn to Psalm 19? And I'll read it to you out of the New Living Translation. Psalm 19, verses 1 through the beginning part of verse 4. Where the psalmist said, The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display His craftsmanship. Day after day they continue to speak. Night after night they make Him known. They speak without a sound or a word. Their voice is never heard. Yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world. The psalmist is saying that the creation speaks a universal language testifying that God exists. We'll talk more about that in a moment. How about Romans chapter 1? And let me read verses 19 and 20 to you. 
where Paul said, Romans 1 verse 19, The people of this world, they know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the, the earth and sky through everything God made. They can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, so that they have no excuse for not knowing him. And Paul is telling us that God made us smart enough to realize that you can't have a creation without a creator, that the creation proves his existence. That's a very uh, clear thing the Bible teaches us about God's existence and all and why God didn't feel it necessary to start out the Bible by saying, now listen, here's how you know I'm real, okay? Somebody's talking to you, obviously they're real, okay? It, 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 takes, it takes a lot of years of college and uh, higher education to, to squeeze that simple, uh, I don't know, childlike faith, I guess you call it, common sense out of a person. It's amazing what professors will believe that kids would never believe. The kids would think it's stupid. That's why, you know, the Bible says that Jesus said that, you know, these things are often hidden from the wise and prudent and revealed to children. All right? But listen, just in case there are some skeptics here tonight that, you know, even though the creation testifies to God's existence, there are going to be those people who are going to look at the creation and say, well, I don't see God. Okay? Why can't God just show us he's real? Okay, well, some people just won't take the obvious. So tonight, I want to just spend some time... I'm going to give you two arguments from creation that prove God's existence. They're called the cosmological argument and the teleological argument. Cosmological argument and the teleological argument. There's a third argument that proves God's existence. It's called the moral argument or the argument from human conscience, which we looked at last time. How that every human being has been born with an innate understanding of right and wrong. Where did that come from? I mean, we're just a process, the result of chemical interactions and mutations and all. How does chemicals produce morality? That testifies to the existence of a moral God who created us and put his laws in our hearts, right? So we looked at that last time. Tonight I'd like to focus on those other two arguments, the cosmological and the teleological arguments, because they also very powerfully prove God's existence. Now, I have taken all three of these arguments from Norm Geisler's series, 12 points that prove Christianity true. So I'm indebted to Dr. Geisler. I'm going to just share uh, much of what he had to say. I've added a few things myself. But let's first of all look at the cosmological argument. Now, try to stay with me. It's not really that deep, but maybe I'll get you confused a little bit. So just try to stay with me. All right? The cosmological argument. What is that? Everything that had a beginning had a cause. Everything that had a beginning had a cause. Now the question is, did the physical universe have a beginning? For many years, scientists maintained the belief that the universe was eternal and therefore had no beginning, which meant it didn't need a cause. However, as their understanding of the universe has increased through the use of more powerful telescopes and so on, they realized that the universe is growing old and wearing out. Energy is being used up. Stars are dying. The universe is running down. And now scientists talk about its eventual heat death. They use the term heat death to describe a time in the future. And they say, oh, billions of years down the road. Okay. But a time in the future where the universe will eventually reach a uniform temperature. Planets, stars, everything. And therefore we'll have no more heat to produce energy. And therefore no more energy to accomplish any useful work. In other words, the universe is growing old. It's wearing out. 
and will eventually die, even as God said in his word. Psalm 102, verses 25 and 6, listen to what the psalmist said. He said, of old you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. Yes, they will grow old like a garment. So God told us that in his word, that the universe was not eternal. It was wearing out, okay? It was dying. This is the greatest argument, guys, from science that proves the universe had a beginning. The scientific term is the second law of thermodynamics. The first law of thermodynamics says that the amount of actual energy in the universe remains a constant. The second law says the amount of usable energy is decreasing. Or, more formally put, in a closed, isolated system. Now, we'll talk more about this in a moment. Just try to hang with me. In a closed, isolated system, such as the naturalist, the evolutionist, believes the whole universe is. They, they believe it's a closed, isolated system. In a closed, isolated system, the amount of usable energy always decreases. Things are running down, wearing out, rusting, and going from order to disorder. It's called entropy. Entropy. The universe is running down. It isn't eternal, as scientists once thought. Its usable energy is being depleted. Robert Jastrow, this, the great agnostic and founder of the Goddard Institute for Space Research and noted astrophysicist, said, and I quote, once hydrogen has been burned within a star and converted to heavier elements, listen, it can never be restored to its original state. Minute by minute, year by year, as hydrogen is used up by the stars, the supply of this element in the universe grows smaller, end quote. This is one of the most firmly established of all scientific laws. There is no known uh, exceptions to the second law of thermodynamic, thermodynamics. In a closed system, it always runs down and burns up its usable energy. Let me give you an example of an open system in a closed system. You know what I'm talking about. Uh, your car needs gas. So you pull into a gas station, pull up to the pump, you take the gas cap off your gas tank, you stick the pump into the gas tank, and you begin to refill it with fuel. You have turned your automobile into an open system. The fuel is being replenished from an outside source. Now, once you cap that gas tank, you now make a closed system. And as you drive the car around, that fuel is being burned up. It can't replenish itself. It's a closed system. It needs you to go to the gas station again. Well, you see, we believe as, as Christians that originally God created the universe it was an open system in the sense that God poured into it all the energy and fuel it needed. And then he capped it off. And now, because the evolutionists say there is no God, so whatever energy or fuel you might say the universe has, which they don't know where it came from, but all they know is it's a closed system, it's now they know it's burning up. It's, it's being used up. The universe, again, is a closed system. It's burning up as usable fuel, therefore it's coming to an end. But here's the problem, not for us, for them, okay? Since scientists have come to realize the universe is going to have an end, well, guess what? They now realize it must have had a beginning. And if the universe had a beginning, it had to have a cause that brought it into existence. It's called the principle of causality. Everything that exists that is going to have an end had to have a beginning. Everything that had a beginning had to have a beginning cause. Because, listen, nothing can't produce something. Even David Hume, the most ardent critic that has ever lived, 
with regard to the existence of God, even he said, I never asserted so absurd a proposition that anything might arise without a cause. Even the most hardened skeptic will admit. I mean, if you have something, and it's going to have an end, if it's not eternal, and it's going to have an end, it had to have a beginning cause. Because nothing can't produce something. Norm Geisler said, and I quote, the principle of causality is the fundamental principle behind all science and all rational thought. Only a fool would deny it. All right. Well, since the universe we know now is not eternal, it is wearing out, running down, it is going to have an end someday, then that means the universe had to have a cause, a beginner, or what we might call a beginning cause. Look, either the first verse in the Bible is true, in the beginning God, the divine cause, created everything, or else we're left with the absurd premise which evolution is built upon that everything came from nothing all by itself. Those are your only two choices, by the way. Okay, Either, as the Bible says, in the beginning God, the divine cause, caused everything, because the universe had to have a start, if it's going to have an end, it's either that or you're left with the only thing left, which is what evolution is built on, everything came from nothing all by itself. Now, when scientists realized the universe was going to have an end, which meant it had to have a beginning, which meant it had to have a beginning cause, of course they rejected God as that beginning cause. And so they had to come up with another cause. What was it? The Big Bang. The Big Bang, which we have said happens at the end, not the beginning. Okay, Second Peter. The elements will melt with a fervent heat, a big explosion. God's going to vaporize the physical universe and recreate it, right? New heavens, new earth. So the Big Bang, we believe in that. Just that we believe it happens at the end, right? Whereas they believe that it happened at the beginning. It was a source of everything, the cause of all the material universe. Isaac Asimov, an atheist, gave this explanation for the beginning of the universe, and I'm paraphrasing him. He said, there was a state of nothingness once, and then, bang, there was something. When you have nothing, you have two possibilities. Either it can remain nothing, or it can become something. Guess what? It became something. <laughs> now, we laugh at that. But honestly, guys, and I challenge you to prove me wrong, that is the best explanation evolutionists have come up with to explain the existence of the physical universe. Somebody has said with tongue-in-cheek, if that's true, if there was nothing and then suddenly there was something, well, I wonder how long an empty garage would take to produce a Cadillac. <laughs> because, you know, when you have nothing, there's two possibilities. It can stay nothing or become something. I've never known anything that's nothing become something. But then I don't have a degree, see. You need a degree for that kind of thinking to make sense, all right? But Asimov is not alone. British scientists and atheists, again, it's always the atheists, because they're always trying to figure out a way to explain everything apart from God. And they get pretty foolish at times. But British scientist and atheist Anthony Kenny said, and I quote, according to the Big Bang Theory, the whole matter of the universe began to exist at a particular time in the remote past. A proponent of such a theory, at least if he's an atheist, must believe that the, that the matter of the universe came from nothing and by nothing, end quote. So in other words, for the atheist, nobody times nothing equals everything. That's what they believe. Again, quoting from Robert Jastrow. I love this quote. 
He said, now we see how the astronomical evidence supports the biblical view of the origin of the world. And he's just saying it because the evidence has compelled him. You can't deny it. Either you believe everything came from nothing or you believe there has to be a beginning cause, a creator. Jastro, at least, I'm not saying he's a Christian. You can believe that there's a divine being that made everything and not be a, a Christian, but at least he's come a long way, all right? But listen to what he said. Now we see how the astronomical evidence supports the biblical view of the origin of the world. The essential elements in the astronomical and biblical account of Genesis are the same. Consider the enormousness of the problem. Science has proved the universe exploded into being at a certain moment. It asks what cause produced this effect. Who or what put the matter and energy into the universe? Science cannot answer these questions. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians that have been sitting there for centuries. End quote. Yeah, reading Genesis chapter 1. All right. The next argument after the cosmological argument for the existence of God is the teleological argument. What does that mean? Well, this is the argument from design. The argument from design, which basically argues that every design had a designer. The universe and life demonstrates highly complex design. Therefore, the universe and life had to have a designer. Guys, this is just common sense. Just common sense. Every design has to have a designer. Every composition has to have a composer. Every painting has to have a painter. Every sculpture has to have a sculptor. It's just common sense, right? Who in their right mind would come into a building like this and go, wow, look at what this explosion created. I mean, fantastic that an explosion could have made this building and look at the lighting system the cooling and we, we walk in here we just assume there was an architect a builder and so on because you can't have this without somebody making it now the only thing we need to determine is does the universe in general and life in particular demonstrate highly complex design let me start off with life and I want to start off with something Norm Geisler used as an illustration, okay? He said, and I'm quoting him, uh, let's say you're on the beach and you look up into the sky and you see the words, drink Coca-Cola. What do you assume? Unusual cloud formation? Or that some intelligent being put that message there? Even atheists assume the latter. Because that little message, drink Coca-Cola, took an intelligent being to put it together, and natural elements like wind, rain, and storm never produced drink Coca-Cola in the sky. Or you get up tomorrow, and the alphabet cereal is spilled all over the table. And right in the middle it says, take the garbage out, mom. <laughs> what do you assume? An earthquake knocked over the cereal, the wind blew on and arranged the letters? Natural forces will never produce take out the garbage, mom, when you spill the alphabet cereal on the table. Only intelligent beings can give it, listen, specified complexity, which Geisel says is the scientific term of what we're speaking about, end quote. Let me contrast natural forces producing random results with specified complexity. A few years ago, I was able to take my family to the Grand Canyon. 
Now, if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, it's quite a spectacular sight to see, right? To see this incredible canyon, um, which was obviously produced by random natural events, right? But it has a beauty and a majesty that's quite spectacular. Now, I didn't take my family to Mount Rushmore. Maybe someday I will, but some of you may have been there. When you went to Mount Rushmore and you looked up and you saw the four faces of the presidents up there, did you think to yourself, wow, look at that. Look what the wind and the rain did. <laughs> Over millions of years of time, it, those look like faces. And you know what? They look like four of our presidents. That's amazing. <laughs> no, you wouldn't say that because you realize that's not the result of random forces of nature. That has specified complexity. Somebody carved those faces. It's just common sense, right? When you look at something that's been done by natural processes in nature, it's beautiful, but it's obviously there's, there's, no, there's no specified complexity that you would see in like a, a sculpture or something like that. The problem with many scientists is they refuse to acknowledge the specified complexity in nature. They see it, but they refuse to acknowledge the specified complexity that there's a designer who made these things. In his book, The Blind Watchmaker, Oxford University professor Richard Dawkins, a leading evolutionist, said this with regard to, bio he calls biology, I should say, and I'm quoting him, the study of complicated things that gives the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. Now, let me just say that again. Here's what he calls biology. The study of complicated things that, listen, give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. He understands they have design, but it can't be specified. It can't be the hand of a designer, so it has to be random forces. Although it looks like it's been created and designed, can't have that. Well, it reminds me of what Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who, listen, suppress the truth of God in their desire to live unrighteously. And guys, that is the bottom line here. Those people that refuse to acknowledge the existence of God, even though he has shown himself in all of creation, they do so because, as Paul said rightly, they want to live a life apart from God's rules. They want to live a life of unrighteousness. And therefore, they ha can't have God looking over their shoulder. They've got to do away with God. And that's what's really driving naturalism and its, its cardinal doctrine evolution. It's a desire to do away with God. Because man doesn't want to be subject to it. If he believes in a creator, he's going to be subject to that creator's rules. And a lot of people don't want to live in subjection to any God's rules. They want to do what they want to do. But listen to me. For those people who are honest, who will look at the creation honestly, there is more than enough evidence from design to prove the existence of God. Listen, and I've just put together some facts. You've probably heard some of these already, but just bear with me. There is enough coded genetic information, enough coded genetic information in a single-celled organism to equal the information in Webster's unabridged dictionary. Now remember now, these things are digitally coded. They have to fit together properly. It's a language in the DNA. It's not random things thrown together. Like in a dictionary, you have from A to Z, 
and all the letters and, uh, and all the words, you know, that are defined, it would be like saying that, well, let me put it this way. Would anybody in their right mind believe that Webster's unabridged dictionary resulted from, a, from an explosion on a printing shop? <laughs> You're walking down the street one day. <laughs> Suddenly you hear a gigantic explosion. You run over there. You see where a building once stood. Maybe the sign is thrown off to the side, printing, Okay. And there, in front of the store, is a beautifully bound, brand new edition of Webster's Unabridged Dictionary with all the words in the right places spelled properly, with all the definitions spelled correctly in the right places. Would you say, remarkable? Remarkable that an explosion produced this. No, you would say, no explosion could produce this. Somebody put this here, okay? <laughs> Somebody made this. But it wasn't the explosion that did it. I mean, that's how ridiculous it is to believe that there is no intelligence behind the complexity we see even in simple life on the earth. And even Darwin's bulldog, as he's called, Dawkins, admits that every cell contains in its nucleus, listen, a digitally coded database larger than all 30 volumes of the Encyclopedia Britannica put together. Even Dawkins admits that. According to Carl Sagan, the human brain is enough genetic information that if, if spelled out in English, would fill, listen, the Library of Congress, which is 20 million volumes. And yet Sagan, before he died, another biological evolutionist, continued to tell us today that all of this happened through random forces, natural processes, without any intelligent intervention or design. It's interesting because some years ago, while Sagan was still alive, he was receiving a lot of money from the government for his SETI project. SETI means Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, where he used radio telescopes to listen for radio waves coming from outer space to try to determine if there was intelligent life out there trying to communicate with us. How sad is that? Think about that. God's screaming through the creation. Everywhere you look, God's screaming, I'm here, I'm real, and he's got a radio, radio telescope you know, pointed at deep space trying to figure out, is there anybody out there? Is there is, trying to communicate to us. God says, hello, heaven's declared my glory, I'm here. But the main criterion was that the radio waves, listen, had to have order or a pattern to them to prove intelligent life was trying to communicate to us. Well, they searched for years and found nothing. One day... Dr. A.E. Wildersmith, who was a Christian, he's, he's with the Lord now. But one day, Dr. A.E. Wildersmith, a Christian and brilliant man with several earned PhDs, brilliant guy, he said to Sagan, he said, Carl, get rid of your radio telescope and come with me into the laboratory and look through my electron microscope and I'll show you a, digitally, a digital code on the helix of DNA that is ordered and proved there is outside intelligence. Carl Sagan refused to look into that microscope. You know, Peter talks about those people who are willingly ignorant. Willingly ignorant. In a book published near the end of his life, Sagan wrote, and I quote, Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves, end quote. How tragic. Sagan looked into the creation and refused to see the hand of the creator. 
And as such, life became meaningless, and he died in utter despair, without any hope that there was anything more than this life. Of course, he knows that now, unfortunately. If he would have only looked into that microscope, who knows? If he would have only looked into that microscope at the incredible complexity in the human cell, maybe his eyes would have been opened at last to the design that unmistakably points to the hand of the creator. We don't know. Michael Behe, who was a professor at Harvard, in his book Darwin's Black Box, destroys Darwinian evolution by documenting the incomprehensible complexity of life at its most basic chemical cellular level. He said, and I quote, evolution cannot explain the origin of the complex biochemical structures that undergird life. It doesn't even try. The conclusion of intelligent design flows naturally from the data itself, not from sacred books or sectarian beliefs, end quote. Behe is saying, look, if you're an honest scientist, the facts will compel you to know there's a God. Because the chemical processes alone have been designed. They just can't happen by accident. In fact, he went on to say a single cell from a human being could have 100,000 molecules and 10,000 intricately interrelated chemical reactions going on at one time. He says cells couldn't arise by chance. No way. In fact, it was Behe in that very book, Darwin's Black Box, uh, who showed that there is such a thing called irreducible complexity. What is that? Well, he used the mousetrap to illustrate. He said the simplest mousetrap that you can design that will still work has to have at least five parts to it. That's about the simplest mousetrap you can, de you can devise. It has to have five parts to it. And when you reach that five parts, it's irreducible complexity. In other words, you can't reduce it down anymore. You have to have all five parts there if the thing's going to work. He likened that to a human cell. He said, look, you can reduce the cell down so far. You get to a certain point where you have irreducible complexity. Everything left has to be there at the same time for the cell to function. If anything is missing, the cell can't survive. The basic components of the cell can't evolve separately. They have to all be present together at the same time or the cell can't exist. Now, I remember back in 1996, I went to a Bible conference in the area here. And at that Bible conference, uh, pastor and author John MacArthur was there speaking. And he told this story. I'd like to read it to you. I think it was very powerful as I was sitting there listening to him tell this story. And it drives home what we're talking about. MacArthur said, I received a call one day from a man named Dr. Richard Lumsden. Dr. Lumsden was the chairman of the science department at Tulane University. He was a renowned microbiologist who does electron microscopy and looks in there and sees DNA strips and studies chromosomes. His premier work had been on cell membranes. MacArthur said, every little cell has a membrane. And he was struggling professionally with that issue as a staunch evolutionist because there was no way the membrane could evolve to keep the cell contained. They would have had to have come into existence simultaneously. And there was no way that that could have happened scientifically by using evolution as an explanation. And so MacArthur said Lumsden was struggling. As a completely secular humanist, he was teaching his classes in the graduate school of Tulane, and a Christian girl came up after class, and he said she asked me a bunch of questions. She said, Dr. Lumsden, may I talk to you and ask you some questions? He said, of course. 
And he said, she asked me all the standard questions that Christians, Christians asked evolutionists. I've heard them on other occasions, and I gave her the standard answers, and she gave me a brief comment after each one, and then thanked me and left. And when she walked away, he said, all I heard was the echo of my own stupidity. And I said to myself, if you believe what you just told that girl, you're an idiot. He said, I went home that day and got a Bible. And in a matter of a few weeks, I committed my life to Jesus Christ and became a creationist. And not only a creationist, I became a six-day creationist because it was the only thing that made sense scientifically to me. I was immediately terminated at the university. I lost my job and my career. MacArthur says this was a Harvard-educated man. He said, I had to re reconstruct my worldview. I started a business and for the next five years made my living from this business while I went back through everything I had ever studied scientifically in the light of what I now knew about the Creator. MacArthur ends by saying, at the end of the five years, he offered himself to the Institute of Creation Research in San Diego and became the most formidable debater against evolutionists across America on university campuses until they wouldn't debate him anymore. Then he came to teach at the Master's Seminary, MacArthur said, before he retired. You know, there are a lot of scientists who are honest enough to admit that evolution does not work, it does not solve the problems, it's based on all kinds of uh, assumptions, things that just can't happen, like everything coming from nothing all by itself. So life demonstrates complex design. Let me give you quickly the second one. The universe demonstrates complex design. Now, listen to me. No principle in modern science, and I've, I've condensed this. We could have, I could have spent a whole evening easy just on this one thing. All right? I've just kind of condensed it down to some of the more salient points. But no principle in modern science has given more impetus to the belief that there must be an intelligent creator, listen, than something called the anthropic principle. The anthropic principle. You remember back in 1997, a movie came out starring Jodie Foster and Matthew McConaughey? It was called Contact. Remember that? The novel from which the movie was taken was written by none other than Carl Sagan. The main thought or theme of the movie, which was repeated three times during the course of the movie, this one statement, all right? The whole movie was built on this one statement. If there isn't intelligent life out there, then there's a lot of wasted space in the universe. If there isn't intelligent life out there, then there's a lot of wasted space in the universe. That movie was built on that idea. Now, that sounds logical, given the incredible size of the universe, but since scientists have discovered what's known as the anthropic principle, it proves that that statement is not true. It's not true. The anthropic principle demonstrates that for life on Earth to be possible, the universe needed to be the size that it is. Again, I quote Robert Jastrow. He said, and I quote, the anthropic principle is the most interesting development next to the proof of the creation. And it's even more interesting because it seems to say that science itself has proven as a hard fact that this universe was made, was designed for man to live in. It is a very theistic result, end quote. What does he mean? Well, let me show you. What is the anthropic principle? It says the universe has been finely tuned, precisely tweaked to support life here in the earth. Now, listen to these, okay? 
We know that oxygen comprises 21% of our atmosphere on the earth. If it were 25%, spontaneous fires would break out. If it were 15%, we'd suffocate. In other words, 21% is exactly what we need and 21% is exactly what we have. The gravitational force, if it were altered, listen, by one part in 10 to the 40th power, our sun would not exist. The moon would crash into the earth or fly off into space. That is an incredibly minute change in the gravitational force which will prohibit, prohibit life on this planet. And when, I, when I talk about tweaks, we're talking about tweaks here. Things so, so small that you begin to realize there had to be a designer. It's just dialed in too precisely for there not to be a creator. I'll give you some more. If the centrifugal force did not precisely balance the gravitational force, nothing would be held into, orb into orbit and the planets would crash into each other. The universe is expanding. If it were expanding at a rate of one millionth, one one millionth slower uh, than it is now, the temperature on Earth would be 10,000 degrees. I mean, think about that. That's remarkable to me. The average distance between stars in our galaxy, which contains roughly three to 400 billion stars, is 30 trillion miles. Now, the space shuttle travels at a speed of 17,000 miles an hour, or five miles a second. At that speed, it would take 1.7 billion years to travel from one star to another in our Milky Way galaxy. If the distance between those stars were altered slightly, the orbits would become erratic and extreme temperature variations would occur here on the Earth, making life impossible. Sagan was wrong. We needed all that space. God knew that. We needed all that space for life on Earth to be, to be possible. And of course, as we are coming to the return of Christ, didn't God say in the book of Daniel, knowledge would increase and men would go to and fro about the face of the Earth? As our knowledge is increasing, God is beginning to show us more and more that he's real, that he's, he created everything. I'll give you a few more. Any one of the laws of physics can be described as a function of the velocity of light. Therefore, even the slightest variations in the speed of light would alter all the other constants and negate the possibility of life here on the Earth. If Jupiter wasn't the size it is, or in its current orbit, life on Earth would probably be impossible. You see, because Jupiter is so big, it acts like a cosmic vacuum cleaner. Its gravitational field is so strong that all the asteroids and other space junk that, that could possibly slam into the Earth get sucked into Jupiter. Somebody called it the giant hoover of the solar system. God knew there's a lot of space junk out there and asteroids and meteors. And a lot of it would strike the Earth if they didn't put this giant planet there called Jupiter, which has got such a strong gravitational pull, it sucks in all this, most of this stuff into its own atmosphere, sparing the Earth. The rotation of the Earth is just right 24 hours. If it were faster, say 15 hours, the wind velocities along the surface of the Earth would be too great. If it were slower, say 36 hours, the temperature of the Earth would be too hot during the day and too cold during the night for us to survive. The axial tilt of the Earth is exactly what it needs to be for life to be possible on this planet, 23 degrees. I'll give you one more. God has even designed lightning for a purpose and precisely regulates it. If the atmospheric discharge rate was greater, there would be too much fire destruction on the Earth. If it were less, there would be too little nitrogen fixing in the soil. And we can go on and on. I mean, I'm just giving you a few of the highlights. 
This anthropic principle goes on and on and on as scientists have discovered more and more all these little tweaks in the universe that without which life on earth would be impossible. Guys, in the light of the anthropic principle, I haven't got enough faith to be an atheist. The universe demonstrates such precision, such intricate design, that has been so finely tweaked to support life in here, the life here on the earth that is absolutely ridiculous. There's no other explanation that can explain the existence of everything except what the psalmist said in Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the expanse of the universe shows his craftsmanship. It all points to him. Psalm 8, verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. So, Next week, as we now really start to get into Genesis chapter 1. But what, having laid a little foundation uh, for the existence of God, looking at the moral argument, the cosmological, teleological arguments, all of this proves God's existence. Of course, I'm confident that most people in this room, if not all of you, don't need to be, we don't need to prove to you that God exists. You already believe that. But we live in a highly skeptical age. And there's a lot of people who need some hard evidence. Well, God's given it to us, all right? God's given it to us. The first verse in the Bible not only gives us our worldview, but it also gives us the basis for which we live our lives. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, which means all of us. So we were created by him. We were created for him. And we'll see now as we get into chapter 1 how this unfolds in the six days of creation father we thank you so much lord for your word your word is truth we thank you lord that as we are approaching the return of our savior to the planet earth that lord you are showing us things that science yes much of which is trying to deny your existence but lord you are beating the scientists at their own game because, Lord, as they, the more they learn about the universe, the more they are compelled to acknowledge there's design everywhere, which hopefully will bring many of them to their knees, acknowledging your existence and receiving your Son as their Savior. But Lord, we just thank you that we don't have to be embarrassed about the first three chapters in Genesis as Christians. We don't have to explain them away somehow. We can just take them at face value because, Lord, they're true. Your word is true. So we thank you, Father. We ask you to continue to bless these studies. In Jesus' name, amen.